You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Rethinking Economics, Lectures and Seminars on World Economics. This is Lecture 11, entitled World Economy, given in Dornach on August 3, 1922. In the opinion of a number of economists, as you are probably aware, it was quite impossible for World War I to last as long as it actually did. From their knowledge of economic relationships, these economists declared that the economic life as existed at the time would not permit such an extensive war to last more than a few months. Yet, as you know, the facts of life refuted this idea. If people thought objectively, this in itself would convince them of the need to revise their theory of economics. If you took the trouble at this moment to follow up the reasons that some economists, at any rate, adduced for their assertion, you would by no means be able to conclude that they were mere fools. Quite the contrary. You would see that their arguments were not at all bad and carried some conviction. Nevertheless, the reality of life refuted them. The war went on far longer than was theoretically possible. Obviously, therefore, economic science did not encompass the whole reality. The reality turned out quite differently from what the economic theory had supposed. We can understand such a thing as this only if we see clearly the nature of the evolution of economic life upon the earth. It consists of a series of successive stages, but one in which the earlier stages continue to exist side by side with the later Similarly, we may say that the lowest organic forms now living are somewhat like the earliest living creatures of earthly evolution. Thus, in a sense, the most primitive creatures are still here, existing side by side with the highest creatures that have evolved up to this time. There is a difference, but there is also a marked resemblance in the forms. So it is in the economic life. The phenomena of primitive phases of economic life are still here today, side by side with those that have attained a higher stage. But in the economic life there is another peculiarity. While in the animal kingdom, for example, the more primitive forms can live literally side by side in space with the more highly evolved, in the economic life the more primitive processes are constantly penetrating into the more highly evolved ones. We might very well compare it with those cases where bacteria penetrate into higher organisms, except that in the economic life it is infinitely more complicated. Nevertheless, we can detect certain underlying structures, and from these we can take useful examples that will help us to bring our line of thought to its conclusion. The more primitive forms of economic life must be conceived as private agricultural economies on a large scale. 
Their magnitude is relative, of course, but we must understand that if the private agricultural economy is self-contained, then it includes within it the other members of the social organism. It has its own administration, possibly even its own defense force, its own police, and moreover its own spiritual cultural life. Such a private economy, grown to gigantic proportions, it is true, but still preserving in all essentials the character of a primitive agricultural concern, a large estate was the so-called kingdom of the Merovingians. It was a kingdom in a quite external sense, but it was certainly so. Excuse me, but it was certainly no state. It was in fact no more than an immense farming estate, comprising a huge area. Economic life underlay everything in the entire social structure of the Merovingian kingdom. On it was built an administrative system that accorded with the prevailing ideas of rights and justice, and into this was placed a spiritual cultural life, an extraordinarily free one for that time. It is only in more modern times, and notably under the influence of, in quotes, liberalism, that we have seen the rise of the maximum of lack of freedom in the spiritual cultural life. Not until liberalism came did the spiritual cultural life begin to grow more and more unfree, and it reached the the zenith of lack of freedom in that embodiment of all political bliss, the Soviet Republic of Russia. Only books approved by the Soviet government can be sold at all. The Pope does at least content himself with proscribing books but under the Soviet government proscription is automatic, inasmuch as no books are printed and published except those that the government permits. Now if we trace the further course of evolution, we see how private economies gradually passed over into national economies, which again at a certain time, at the beginning of the modern period, tended to become state economies. The way it happens is characteristic. Private economy, initiative in private business, gradually passes over into the hands of government departments, and thus the fiscal administration grows increasingly into industrial organization. We see the economies passing over into the life of the state, absorbing cultural life in the process. So, when we witness the rise of the modern economic and cultural organism, excuse me, so then, we witness the rise of the modern economic and cultural organism of the state. The state as such has grown increasingly powerful. We, as you know, are aware that it will have to be, so to speak, articulated once more in distinct members if economic life is to progress. At the moment, however, we are not concerned with threefolding. We observe, as I said, how private economies were gradually joined together. It generally happened on a rather large scale. Private economies grew into something that could be called economy on a larger scale, national economy, and in this way a new social structure was created. Yet within the new, the element of private economy was still preserved. The more primitive phase of evolution was still there as an insertion into the new. What is it that arises at this stage? in the true sense of national economy. It is a mutual exchange between the several private economies. 
the exchange is regulated in many different ways. The regulation hovers like a kind of cloud over it all. The exchange, the trade or commerce between so many private economies, is the essential thing that arises with this welding of private economies into a national economy. What is the outcome? We saw yesterday that in the process of economic exchange each of the parties has an advantage or can have an advantage. The result is, therefore, that the single economies that join together for the sake of mutual exchange, the essential thing in all economic life, profit by so doing. Once more, then, the single economies, the single businesses, gain an advantage by joining together. They profit by this connection simply because they can now exchange with one another. We can draw up a statement. We can calculate how much the one private economy or business will gain by means of the other private economies with which it is now connected. Each party gains an advantage, and the gain of each and all becomes significant for the entire economy. At the time when the modern science of economics was founded, that particular stage had been reached. National economies had taken shape out of the private economies. This must be borne in mind if we wish to understand the economic ideas of Ricardo or Adam Smith. Only on this foundation can we understand the thoughts that they evolved about, in quotes, political economy, as they called it. It was this working together of private economies that they actually saw and upon which they based their views. In Adam Smith, you can see it again and again, how he thinks from the point of view of private economy or private business, and from that draws his conclusions. At the same time, he has before him the picture of their joining together into a national economy. Yet even in their ideas about this latter process, the older economists retained to a large extent a way of thinking based on private business. Such were the views at which they commonly arrived. They treated national economy on the analogy of private economy. Thus the fertility, the prosperity of a national economy as they conceived it, lay in the fact that one national economy would exchange with another, would come into mutual interchange with another, and would thus derive profit and advantage. Mercantilism, for example, was based on the advantages arising from such exchange between national economies. Now, already at this early stage, where the single private economies or businesses come together into a large national economy, there is sure to arise a kind of leadership. In effect, the most powerful of the private economies that have merged into a larger complex will naturally assume the leadership. And this would undoubtedly have happened at the transition from the stage of private economy into that of national economy. But it was masked and hidden, and it did not come fully to expression, inasmuch as the state undertook the leadership. If this had not happened, one private economy, namely the most powerful of them all, would naturally have been the leader. So in effect it happened that the single private economies passed imperceptibly into the state economy. But it was different at the next stage, 
when, in the further course of modern history, the mutual exchange between national economies, world trade, in other words, became more and more comprehensive. Then, indeed, such a leadership emerged quite evidently. It happened as an absolute matter of course in the further progress of economic life that England's national economy became the dominating one. From another point of view, I have already drawn your attention to the fact that England evolved directly from trade into industrialism. Let us think what happened while England was acquiring colonies. England set the standard for currencies. Its colonies and the manner of private economies joined together into a larger complex. In the first place, this gave rise to those internal advantages that are always the result of mutual exchange. Not only this, it also gave rise to a powerful economic, hege- economic hegemony that with the further evolution of world trade subsequently exerted a dominant influence on the economic life of the world. While England was gaining its colonies, it set the standard for currencies, because it was precisely through England that gold was forced on those countries that adopted it throughout the world. You may easily compute that in economic dealings with a rich country having a gold currency, any country that did not possess the gold currency would be at a disadvantage. In a word, we may say that under the influence of world trade, England became the leading economic power. While this was going on, moreover, it was still possible to develop concepts of national economy continuing in a straight line with whatever modifications and improvements from Hume, Adam Smith and Ricardo and, we may add, Karl Marx. Fundamentally, though, he effectively turned their ideas upside down. Karl Marx only continued along the same lines. The ideas of these economists are to be understood only if we have before us the picture of the economic life that arose under the dominating influence of England's economic power. Now, with the last third of the nineteenth century, there was a transition from world trade to world economy. It is a very remarkable process, this passage from world trade into world economy. Definitions are, of course, inexact, for these transitions tend to take place in successive stages. But if we want a definition, we must say that at the stage of world trade, the economic life of the world is characterized by single national economies exchanging with one another. This traffic quickens the whole process of exchange and thus essentially alters prices alters the whole structure of economic life. In all other respects, the economic life is carried on within the several territories. In contrast, it may be called world economy, in quotes, when the single economic units not only exchange their products with one another, but when they actually work together industrially. For example, partially manufactured products may be sent from one country to another for their manufacture to be continued there. That is a radical example of what I mean by their working together industrially. So long as it is merely a question of raw products, the account will continue to show a condition of pure trade. This cannot yet be described as an actual working together in the industrial life. 
But when all factors in human life, insofar as they are affected by economics, that is to say, when all production, all distribution, all consumption, not merely production alone or consumption alone, are fed from the entire world, when all things are intricately interwoven and fed from the entire world, then we have world economy. And through the rise of this world economy, certain advantages that existed formerly for the national economies are lost. Let us look back once more. When private economies join into a national economy, they gain on the whole. They derive advantages. Every single one derives advantages. But apart from this, what is it that impels them? It is, of course, not always conscious insight that impels them thus to join together. Their joining together is, usually, not brought about by conscious economic insight, since in most cases the feeling for liberty is too great. The private business person is not as concerned with the piling up of the profits that arise in this way. Economically, these profits certainly arise, but the process is more complicated than that. The fact is that the single private economies or businesses have the same characteristic as every living organism. Their life tends in the course of time to become weaker and weaker. It is a universal law, and it applies equally to economic life. An economic life that is not being constantly improved always deteriorates. Usually, therefore, the merging into larger holes did not take place with the object of making private businesses profitable beyond their original level, but with the object of protecting them from imminent decline. When, once the businesses join together, they gain the corresponding advantage, though, of course, it varies from one case to another. And we may say that whatever the single economies have lost in the course of time is amply compensated by their joining into national economies. Indeed, it is usually more than compensated. Moreover, whatever the national economies have lost in the course of time is amply made up by world trade and the transition into world economy. But when world economy is once achieved, what then? With whom can it exchange? This, in effect, is what has happened. We have seen the economic life of the entire earth gradually merging into world economy, and at this point the possibility of reaping further advantages by merger is at an end. The economists who declared that World War I could not last as long as in fact it did were thinking in terms of national economies and not of world economy. If world economy had been national economy, their declarations would have been quite true. But from the very beginning, the war had the tendency to spread and spread, and by this very fact, it had a longer life. If in the state of world economy we continue to think in the spirit of national economies, world economy itself will at a certain point break up. Even if the breakup had not already been precipitated by various dark forces, this would be the inevitable outcome of our continuing to think in terms of national economy. You see, there 
You see there how circumstances that are quite clearly perceptible play into the economic domain, but cannot in the nature of things be easily grasped with figures and statistics. This will show you that it is quite impossible to prolong the old economic ideas in a straight line. We are obliged to admit the need for a science of economics that will express the realities of the immediate present. The economic categories formed about a century ago no longer hold good today. What we need is an economic science capable of thinking in the spirit of world economy. Herein you see one of our greatest historical problems. Observe the political leaders of today coming together at Versailles, Genoa or The Hague. Science has provided them with a way of thinking only in terms of national economy. Whatever results they arrive at, unless and until they are permeated with world economic thinking, must lead downhill. Can they deny that they are tearing the economic life still more to pieces, erecting fresh artificial barriers, and thus hindering the transition into a pure world economy? We see this tendency in the immediate past, the tendency to break the world asunder as far as possible, even in the economic life, and at the same time to conceal the tendency under the cloak of political and national pleas. Yet we shall have to pass into a real-world economy and a corresponding economic science, or we shall create an economically impossible state of affairs across the earth. Such a condition of affairs can continue to exist for a time only through one part of the earth that steals advantages at the expense of another by means of differences in currency or the rates of exchange. This is precisely what is happening in economic life at the present moment. To conceive what world economics really means, we must see clearly, to begin with, that at the frontiers of the domain of world economy, if we may use the expression, the conditions will be quite different from those of economic domains bordering on one another. Relatively speaking, a world economy exists today, and therefore, relatively speaking, a science of world economy will have to follow. The domain of world economy borders on nothing else, and this makes it necessary for us to observe still more precisely those economic processes that emerge within a closed economic domain, independent of its external frontiers. The cardinal problem for modern economics to solve is the problem of the closed economic domain, a self-contained domain of one giant economy. Today the very smallest question, even the price of breakfast coffee, is influenced by the economic life of the entire earth. If it is not so, it means that progress is only partial. This state of affairs is actually on the way, and our thinking will have to follow. To understand the economic conditions in a closed economic domain, we must see clearly that within the economic domain, in the mutual interplay of production, consumption, and commerce, that is, in effect, circulation, we have on the one hand consumable commodities, some of them relatively lasting, no doubt, while on the other hand we have the thing we call money, 
regarding the form of economy to which these things are subject, it makes an essential difference whether we envision the class of food products, for example consumable products, or of clothing, more durable, or let us say of furniture or houses, still more durable. With respect to their use and consumption, we have these important differences of durability between different kinds of economic products. As an instance of a very long-lasting economic product, we might point once more to the diamond in the crown of England, or any other crown. Or again, we might think of the Sistine Madonna. Such things may be to some extent regarded as a kind of product that will endure. We find them especially among works of art. Now, in a social organism subject to division of labor, having therefore an extensive process of circulation, there must be some equivalent of every product. There must be the money value representing the price. But a very cursory observation of the economic realm will convince you that this equivalent between the commodity value and the money value is fluctuating. A product is wor- worth so much at one place and so much at another. A product can be worth more if it is processed in one way or less if it is processed in another. Be that as it may, however. In the total economic life you will perceive that apart from a few exceptional goods of, good, of great durability, we always deal with goods that pass away in time. They lose their value and after a certain amount of time are no longer there. The one exception, strange to say, in our whole economic life is money. Although it occupies a position of perfect equivalence to the other elements of economic life, money does not wear out. You can get to the root of the matter in this way. If I have twenty dollars worth of potatoes, I must see to it that I get rid of them. I must do something to get rid of them. After a time they are no longer there. They are used up. They are gone. Now, if it were in a true relation of equivalence to the goods that are produced, then money, too, would have to wear out like other goods. That is to say, if the body economic contains money that is incapable of being used up, money that does not wear out, we may well be giving money the advantage over goods which do wear out. This is a most important point, and it becomes all the more so when we take the following into account. Think of all that I must do if, let us say, through my activity and labor, I want to thrive so well that as a result of having a certain amount of potatoes today, I shall have double the amount in fifteen years. And think, on the other hand, how little I would have to do if I possessed twenty dollars in money today and wished to possess double the amount in fifteen years. I would need to do nothing at all. I could withdraw my entire labor power from the social organism and let other people work. All I would need to do is lend my money and let other people do the work. Unless I myself, in the meantime, would see to it that the money is spent, the money need not be used up. This is the very situation that brings into the social organism so much of what is afterward felt as a social incorrectness, as an injustice. Indeed, gigantic changes are brought about in the social organism, even economically speaking, by this reshuffling. 
I will not say reshuffling of the relationships of property, I will not speak of these, but of the relationships of work and activity. And we may ask how these changes are related to another factor, by which it is perhaps easier to comprehend them. For there is still something rather vague about it if I merely describe empirically, as I did just now, this existing discrepancy between money and the real objects in the economic organism. How can we get a picture thought of some particular instance? We can get a picture of it if we consider, to begin with, how absolutely fundamental for the whole economy, in a closed domain, is the consumption by all the human beings contained in it. This is the very first premise, the total consumption by all the human beings who live in the economic domain. That is something that is simply there. The consumption by all the human beings contained in any economic domain is presupposed. There is also another factor that is of fundamental significance, and that is the land as such. Though this was badly misunderstood by the physiocrats, for example, it is nevertheless true that land is of fundamental significance, in spite of the fact which has emerged from these lectures, that it must be constantly devalued. Indeed, it is just because of its fundamental significance that it must again and again be devalued. The physiocrats made the following mistake. They lived in a time when land, as is of course still the case, had capital value. They conceived their ideas under the influence of this fact. They traced the economic relationships, indeed in a very clear and graphic way. Of all the economists, they were the most rational. From their standpoint they came to the conclusion that the intrinsic worth of an economic realm lies in the cultivation of the land, that is, in the production of those goods that actually serve human nourishment. So long as we remain within this paradigm, we must in fact regard the land as the more or less fixed and given foundation of what constitutes the intrinsic worth of an economic realm. You need only reflect on how the workers who work upon the land, who unite their labor with the nature products that subsequently serve for human nourishment, do in effect, so far as food is concerned, feed all the others along with themselves. All the others are dependent on them. All the others must be nourished by them. The others, it is true, can somehow get the means to pay for food and pay more or less. But we may think it out in simple terms in order to grasp the essential point. Let us suppose that there is a certain number, A, of eaters. This number, A, will include all the farm workers, all the industrial workers, all the investors, all the merchants, all the spiritual cultural workers. In effect, everyone. All require feeding. There will be another number, B, of those who have nourishment to offer. That is to say, B is the number of those who, by their work, really provide whatever passes over directly into human nourishment, into that part of the sum of economic consumption that represents the food consumed. Now if A is increased to A to the first, while B remains constant, B's product will have to be further divided, 
and unless B can also be increased in its value somehow, people will have to be brought into the country and the yield of the land increased. In other words, you cannot arbitrarily increase the number of spiritual cultural workers, for example, within a given economic domain, without increasing on the other side the number of those who are responsible for the production of food. Alternatively, you can increase the fertility or yields of the soil. Increasing the yields may, of course, be the achievement of spiritual cultural workers, but in that case it follows that those who so contribute during a period when the yield is higher must be wiser. They must have higher faculties than those who went before them. Thus the increased yield of farm labor is in a certain sense equivalent to the enhancement of the insight with which we elaborate the products we receive from nature. This enhancement may be done in various ways. Someone may, for example, enhance the forestry of a whole country by improving the bird life of the country. It may be done in countless ways. We are only concerned with the principle. As long as we are thinking only in terms of national economy, it is clear enough that such things can happen. Into a country whose people have little insight, cleverer people may immigrate from another country, and then they may improve the cultivation of the land. On the other hand, if more people move up into the classes that are not actually producing food, fresh workers may be called into the country. All these things actually happen within and across the frontiers of national economies that border upon other national economies. All that we can think about this matter may now be expressed in the question of what is to be done if, on the side of A, consumption is in excess of what B can produce. Whatever we may think at this point in terms of purely national economy, it ceases to be thinkable when world economy arises, and when the conditions of the world are already in a certain sense disposed as for world economy. What we have to do is to form an idea of the changes entailed by the existence of a self-contained economic domain. We can study a self-contained domain empirically by observing some small economy wherein exports and imports can be more or less disregarded. After all, there have been such economies, and we find it to be true that the foundation is the land. What the land yields is subjected to labor, elaborated, and thus receives an economic value. Thereafter, labor itself is organized. We come to the class of people who are no longer actual producers of food, who are consumers but not producers, as far as food is concerned. Above all, when we come to the spiritual cultural workers, we have consumers and not producers, so far as food is concerned. In a self-contained economic realm, we must therefore distinguish with respect to food a certain number of producers who, indeed, if I may say so, are very much aware of the fact that they are the producers and over against them the consumers. These things, of course, are relative. The transition is gradual. But if we consider the whole of human life within a self-contained economic realm of this kind, we must bring about what I explained a few days ago. The capital must not be allowed to become congested. 
at the place where the spiritual cultural life is most highly evolved in the forming of capital, this place is of course spread out throughout the entire economic realm, the excess of capital that has been acquired must not be allowed to flow into the land where it would become dammed up. Provision must be made for the elimination of the excess capital. The capital must not be allowed to become congested in the land. That is to say, at an earlier stage in the process, the congestion must be prevented by the free gift to spiritual cultural institutions of the excess that has been acquired. The only exception is that what I described as a, in quotes, seed, must be allowed to pass on to the land. It is here that the concept of free gift confronts us inevitably. There must be free gifts. Study any of the self-contained economic realms that have arisen in the course of history, and you will see that the free gift is always there. In all essentials, spiritual cultural life is dependent on what, in the economic sense of the word, are free gifts, pure and simple. From the simple case in which Charles the Bald, out of what he had available to give away, maintained Scotus Origina as his court philosopher, whom some have regarded as a rather superfluous piece of furniture, to the case of Peter's Pence, whereby the Roman Catholics all over the world give their free gifts to the Church in small doses, such gifts are always there. Wherever an economic life, no matter how gigantic it may become, represents an economic domain more or less self-contained, you have the transformation of accumulated capital into gift capital for the maintenance of spiritual cultural institutions. In other words, now that we have inevitably come to a closed economic realm, namely that of the entire world, we should reflect upon the fact that one thing is inevitable in a truly economic sense. What would otherwise become dammed up in the land must vanish into spiritual cultural institutions. I say once more, it must somehow vanish into the spiritual cultural institutions. It must take effect as a free gift. For a truly modern economic science, we must seek an answer to the question of how, in the sense of economics, must we buy and sell in such a way that the values, primarily created as food values within the purely material realm, may vanish within the spiritual-cultural domain? That is the great question. I will formulate it once more. What form of payment must we strive for in our economic interactions so that what is created by the elaboration of nature, where the productive process primarily works for the nutrition of humanity, eventually vanishes in spiritual-cultural institutions. This is the great economic question to which we shall find the answer in the next lecture. The end of Lecture 11